Well, hey, if you have your Bible or the YouVersion Bible app, I really encourage you to go to Luke chapter 18 today. Luke chapter 18, we're going to continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke that we've been in a little over a year now. We finally made it to chapter 18, and as we have, we've seen Jesus move towards Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem where He will face the cross to pay the price for all of our sins. And as he does, he's using every opportunity to teach everyone that he possibly can who he is and how to have a relationship with him. So today uh, we can kind of have a vague audience. We don't know exactly who Jesus is speaking to, whether it be his disciples or a crowd or whatnot. But we do know that we have a very specific teaching from him right here in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse so if you uh, have your Bible or the YouVersion Bible app, Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, we're just going to read this small uh, little parable that he says. Starting in verse 9, it says this, He also told them a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one, Fer- one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing infants to him that he might touch them. And when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We're going to talk about what this means for our lives today, but before we do that, as always, let's go before God in prayer. Ask Him for His help with that. Pray with me if you will. Oh, Father, again, we thank you so much for your word that we can rely on it, that is trustworthy and true. And Father, help us to um, just abide by it. And I, I pray that you would mold our hearts to whatever your will is, Father. Soften our hearts to whatever it is that you have for us. Help us to grow in our relationship with you. And not just here in this room, but as we go back, continually glorifying you in our homes and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods. To not just be Christians who show up to church, but God, who leave this place and shine your light in a dark world. To love those around us and to point them towards you. It's in your precious life-changing name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Hey, uh, any Olympic fans uh, out there? The Winter Olympics are starting. Uh, I really enjoy watching the Olympics. I don't know about you. They're just very entertaining to me. My favorite summer sport is ping pong because I think that it's cool that I can play an Olympic sport. Uh, But uh, I don't know about you. And then I I thought when I was a teenager, I was like, yeah, I could definitely compete. I'm good. Yeah. And then I watched the next summer's Olympics and I see that the guys are like 50 feet from the table and they're like running and sprinting all over the place to get it. And I just thought, Nope, I can't do that, but I kept playing ping pong. I think one of my favorite winter sports is curling, which I think is one of the weirdest sports out there, throwing rocks on ice, but I think it's really entertaining. Any curling fans out there? Nobody. Okay, well, maybe one half a hand. Okay, it's kind of a weird sport, but I will say in 2018, there is a huge 
massive upset in the men's curling Olympic sport. In fact, a few dudes from Wisconsin and Minnesota won the gold. One article put it like this, that it was the most unlikely Olympic gold medal in curling history. I don't know about you, but if I got that gold medal, I think I would like frame that like phrase from that article. Cause that's just, I mean, think about that. And they're just a couple of ordinary guys and they beat crazy teams, teams like Canada, Great Britain, Sweden, teams that normally excel at this sport. And these guys, they're just a handful of normal, ordinary dudes. I mean, one was a sporting goods salesman. One was in research and development. Another owned a liquor store. Yet another was an engineer. Just a bunch of dads who got together like a bowling night, but theirs was curling, and they got really good at it and said, you know what, let's compete at the Olympics. And then they won the gold. I mean, it's crazy. And I don't know about you, but like, I just love underdog stories. Like you think, man, they have no chance at winning and those make the best sports movies, right? Like nobody makes a movie about the best of all time and that they were just best all, all the way around. Like think about a movie about Tom Brady. Okay. That'd be the most boring movie out there, right? Well, you know, when I won my seventh Super Bowl ring and I couldn't fit them on one hand anymore, you know, I mean, think about it. It would just be boring. But when you think about an underdog, there's just something endearing about that story, isn't there? But here's the problem. Nobody wants to be the person that's not as good as everybody else. I mean, think about it. I mean, do little kids say, you know what? I'm going to grow up someday and I'm going to win the silver medal. Nobody says that, right? Nobody says, you know what? I think I could probably win bronze. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go win bronze. No, everybody goes for the gold. Everybody wants to be the best, right? Everyone wants to have that reputation where you're saying, hey, you know what? I'm the best. Everybody knows it, and I'm going to be everybody, and this is going to be awesome, right? Why? We always want to be the best. As people, we oftentimes have a difficulty with humility. We have a difficulty with being humble. We want to be the best. We want everyone to know it. And so Jesus here, he brings up this parable to these people, to all of us to say, hey, we need to work on this humility. In fact, right at the beginning here, it says that he tells them this parable uh, uh, to those who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This word contempt that the Bible uses, it is literally meaning to utterly despise. Uh, this word is also used when uh, the soldiers take Jesus to the cross and put the thorn of crowns on his head. It says that the soldiers despised Jesus. This is what Jesus is talking about here. When you treat others with contempt, this utterly uh, de despising others here, this is what he's talking about. And he's saying, hey, listen, we all need to work on our humility. Now, this may sound familiar to you. I mentioned that we've been going through uh, this sermon series for a while now. Back in Luke chapter 14, Jesus also spoke to humility. Remember when he had the Pharisees and they invited him over to this dinner and he said, hey, listen, you all are going to this seat of honor right next to the host. Actually, what you should do is go to the least seat so that the host can uh, bring you up to the most seat here and not demote you down. And so he's saying, hey, you need to be humble here. I think it's just like Jesus to just sprinkle it in here. There we go. There we go. There we go. Just slowly over time. You know, a lot of times we like to talk about things and we'll say, all right, I'm going to work on this for four weeks and it's going to be great. Then we're going to move on to the next topic. It's going to be great. Then we're going to move to the next topic and we're not going to talk about it again for four or five years until we come back around to it. That's not how God works, right? I mean, think about how God works in your life. 
Oftentimes, it's just a sprinkle here, a stretch here, a conviction there, and he brings you along and he slowly transforms you, if you allow him to, to be less like yourself and more like Jesus. The fancy theological term to this is sanctification, but all it means is God transforming you slowly over time to be less like you and more like him. Jesus here, in his ministry here on earth, does this. He sprinkles this in. He convicts people there. And it's just this slow move. And so again, he's bringing up this idea of being humble, of humility, to count others more significant than yourself. And so how he does this is he gives us two examples. He says there's a Pharisee. And you guys know this about going through this series. You guys know the Pharisees are the most religious elite out there. Everyone would look to these guys and go, they're perfect, they're the goody-two-shoes, and they're the people that we need to look up to. And then he brings up this second example of a tax collector. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know tax collectors are despised. You want to talk about people utterly despising someone? Everyone in Israel would have looked at a tax collector like a, a, a terror to their country. I mean, really, like a traitor. They have traded their allegiance from Israel to Rome. They are stealing from people. I mean, people would have just looked at them and said, no way. And so when Jesus turns the table, and when he says, hey, actually, the tax collector here, he's the one who went home justified, not the Pharisee. Jesus' listeners would have been just like appalled at this. Like, what? No way. That's crazy. What is going on here? So let's look at these couple examples that Jesus gives us and see how we as well can stay humble. Take a look here. It says the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men. And I kind of think that this uh, Pharisee would have spoken loudly so that other people could hear. Even though it says that he was standing by himself, we know the Pharisees had a practice to pray around other people in a very public area. And so I kind of uh, like uh, imagine him praying like this, oh, God, thank you, I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I mean, could you imagine being the tax collector and hearing the Pharisee say that? Like, talk about a cringe minute right? I mean, that's terrifying. And he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What is this guy doing? Well, first and foremost, he's comparing himself to others. Look at what he says. He says, I thank you that I am not like other men, even like this tax collector. And he names off another of, uh, of other people that he could be, but he says, thank God that I am not. I kind of view this guy as not really talking to God, but talking to other people, talking about himself. And first and foremost, I think the trap that he falls into and the trap that we need to avoid is not comparing ourselves to others. You know, when you compare yourself to others, can, you can feel really good about yourself. You know why? Because there's always somebody worse than you. Right? I mean, think about it. There, if you could be on death row and awaiting your death in like a week, and you could say, oh, at least I'm not Ted Bundy, right? Like there's always worse people out there than me, right? No matter what situation you're in, there's somebody worse off. And you can feel really good about yourself for a very small amount of time if you compare yourself to other people that are worse off than you. The problem is there's also other people that are better off than you as well, right? And so we have to avoid this trap of comparing ourselves to others because it's not the Lord's standards. What are the Lord's standards? Well, let's take a look at this tax collector. 
This tax collector here in verse 13 prays a very short prayer. In fact, it's less than half as long as his counterpart, the Pharisee, and yet Jesus commends the taxpayer. So just as a quick side note, did you know your prayers don't have to be lofty and long? You don't have to impress God with your prayers. All you have to do is just be honest and go before him like this tax collector did. And he says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. Now think about his demeanor in which he's going before God. I mean, literally, he's like this, off in a corner. He won't even look up to heaven and he's beating his chest. I mean, think about the humility that he goes before God. He knows that he is not worthy to talk to God. He knows that he is not worthy to even look to God. And he says simply this. This is his whole prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. That's all he prays. Now, the first thing I want to point out about this is he doesn't even ask for grace. We know if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know there's a big difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, a punishment, right? We all deserve, we've all fallen short, we all deserve the punishment of sin. And Romans tells us that that is death. And he just asks for mercy towards that. He doesn't even ask for grace. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, a new life in Him, eternal life with Him after we die. And he doesn't even ask for that. He just simply asks for mercy, probably the most humble thing that he can ask for in just a handful of words. But what does he do? Instead of comparing himself to others, like the Pharisee did, he compares himself to God's standards. Look at this. He calls himself a sinner. So instead of comparing yourself to others, instead what I think we ought to do is compare ourselves to the Lord's standards here. And God's standards, listen, they're very high. I mean, you may be better than the person next to you or your neighbor or whoever you see on social media that you see, man, your life's a mess. My life's better than you. At least I'm doing better than you. Listen, that is not God's standards, though. The Lord's standards are perfect, and we've all fallen short. The Bible makes that very clear. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We've all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We'll all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Romans chapter 3 says, none is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3.23 probably puts it the most distinctly when it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. These are the Lord's standards that we all have fallen short of, that God is perfect And He is holy. And listen, all of us have sinned. And all of us deserve death. But the Lord thankfully gives us a gift through His Son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. And He says, hey, listen, the work's already been done. The cross has already passed. All you have to do is accept this free gift. This is the Lord's standards. And listen, when you focus on this, When you focus on yourself as simply missing the mark, I mean, really, that's what the Old Testament word for sin means. It just means it's almost like a, think of a person with a bow and arrow. What do they call those archers? I should know that. That's an Olympic sport, right? Anyways, all right. So they call it, right? But it's literally missing the mark. That's what it means to sin. You have missed God's mark. That's what it means to sin. You've fallen short. When you focus on that, here's the interesting part that it does. 
When you go before God and you say, God, I'm a sinner and I need you. It instantly draws you closer to God because you are acknowledging your need for a Savior. And He offers that to each and every one of us. He offers us that Savior. When you do that, it draws you closer to the Lord. A couple more things I want to point out about these different examples that Jesus says about staying humble. Take a look again here at the Pharisee. He's praying alone, and he prays, God, I thank you. I'm not like the other men, exhaustioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisees would not only fast when they were commanded to in Scripture, but would oftentimes fast when there were a lot of people around. When there was a big day at the market, what they would do is they would literally make themselves pale in everything that they could do, and they would walk through the market. And it wouldn't just be like walking like we normally walk at the store today. I mean, they would make a show of it. They would, oh, they would limp all along and they would go, oh, I'm so hungry. They would let everyone know that they were fasting because they are holier than you. This is what this guy's referring to. He's also referring to the fact that Pharisees often tithed to the ridiculous uh, legalistic standard. In fact, it was commanded that you'd give a tenth of all you have to the storehouse, to the Lord. And what they would do, the Pharisees were so legalistic about this, that even in their garden, they would grow herbs. They would cut off a tenth of the herb because they didn't have uh, all, all the time money like we have today. They had some of that. But they also had a lot of commodities that they would tithe. And so what they would do is they would get an herb. So think of literally like a mint leaf, and you would cut 10% of it off and give that to God. Now, that sounds really righteous, and if you have a good heart about it, that's awesome. That's great. But the problem is the Pharisees did that so that they would look more righteous than everyone else and despise everyone else who didn't do that. That's what he's referring to. He's focusing on he, himself, and I. Look at, look, uh, in, in fact, look, look at this prayer. He brings himself up. He has a personal pronoun five times throughout this prayer. And this is not the longest prayer, right? I mean, he's a Pharisee. They're known for long, lofty prayers. This is honestly a pretty short one compared to most Pharisees. And he still brings himself up five times. He's always self-centered on what he is doing. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I get. What is he doing that we need to avoid? Well, I think what, uh, what we really need to avoid is focusing on our own good works like this Pharisee did. You know, so many times we can feel really good about ourselves, right? Uh, some, sometimes, not, not all the time, sometimes we have off days, but sometimes we have a really good day with the Lord. I mean, you've done your devotions, you've done your prayer time, you're feeling good. It's really easy to get big-headed, right? Oh, look at me, I'm so perfect. I got a four-day streak of my devotional. It's awesome. Yeah, look at me. I am just the best ever. God must be impressed with me. He must be. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just the most best person ever out there. Now, this is what this Pharisee has the mentality of. And it's what we can fall into if we're not careful. And honestly, it's what the enemy can use oftentimes when we have a really good time with the Lord, when our faith is just clicking in. Many times, this is an attack from the enemy that he will use to cause us to be haughty and big-headed and prideful in our relationship with the Lord and thus pull us away from God. Take a look, though, in verse 13 at this tax collector. Look at what he does, though. He simply says, God, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. So instead of focusing on his own good works, like the Pharisee did, look at what he does. He says, God, be merciful to me. He focuses on what God can do instead of himself. So instead of focusing on your own good works, focus on what God is doing, on his work, on his finished work on the cross, on his work that he is doing in you right now through discipling you and sanctifying you to himself. You might ask, okay, how do I do that though? Well, we uh, took a look at Romans 3.23 earlier, but I want to read a couple verses after that too. Remember Romans 3.23 says, For all sin have fallen short of the glory of God. But here's what comes after that. It says, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, you want to talk about focusing on God's good work. Talk about those couple verses. You focus on what God has done for you, is doing for you, and is doing for others as well. When you start focusing on that, it changes your life. Paul commanded Timothy, a young pastor, uh, to, to do this as well when he wrote this in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Again, Paul's not focusing on his own ministry. He's not focusing on Timothy's ministry and what he's doing. He's focusing on what God is doing and has done already. And when we do that in our own lives, it changes us. This is what it might look like in your life. It's, it's really easy when things are going well in your life. It is really easy to go, yeah, you know, I worked really hard on that. I worked really hard on this project. And so, uh, you know, work gave me a bonus. And then I used that bonus to do uh, this and this investment. It worked out well for me. And I'm just, I, I'm pretty awesome. I got it all together. So maybe you should take tips from me. I'm thinking about starting a podcast, right? I mean, this is what it can focus like in our, or look like in our lives when we focus on ourselves and what we're doing. Instead, we ought to give glory to God, though. I mean, what what if in conversations you did a little bit more like this, like, yeah, that's awesome. That's I worked really hard on this, but God gave me the energy to do that. And not in a fake way, not in a trite way, but in a way that genuinely points people towards the Lord. To say, hey, He gave me these talents. I'm just using my talents to glorify Him the best way that I possibly can. Um, I'll give you an example of this in my life. Uh, when I was 16, I got my first job. It was washing dishes at Prairie Camp over uh, towards Goshen Walkers area. That's where I uh, grew up. And I would ride my bike at 5.30 in the morning. It was still dark. I had like a little flashing light that my dad made me put on there for safety things. And, you know, I would ride my bike and I'd go wash dishes. And uh, that's how I got a little bit of pocket money. And so based on the skills that I had there, I was able to get a job at Meyer in the deli. And it was kind of kitchen related. And so they gave me a job. And then uh, one of my friends was working for a cell phone company, and he made a lot of money. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go try that. I'm going to go uh, put in an application and uh, just do my best. I'm not qualified for it. I don't have uh, all the qualifications that they list off online in the application process, but I'm just I'm going to give it a shot anyways. 
So I got an interview and I uh, sat down with them and I said, yeah, you know, here's what I've noticed in the deli that, you know, I've done and that, you know, is the customer service aspect and the boss is really impressed. And even though I didn't have the qualifications, he gave me the job. And then I went to go quit because it was just a summer job for me. And he said, you know what, Josh, we've looked at this and you've actually met your goals and no one meets their goals. You've met your goals for three months. I said, no one meets their goals. I thought that's why we were there in the first place. And he said, you know what, instead of quitting, can we transfer you over to Mishawaka? And then that way you can continue working. And because of that, I was able to uh, save up enough money and pay for college and graduate debt-free. And because of that, I was able to pay for Tammy and I's wedding, and we didn't have to go into debt over that. But I didn't cause any of that to happen. That was all God. I mean, without that one job that I had when I was 16 that I didn't even try for, the lady that ran the kitchen went to my church. She offered me the job. I would have never been able to do all that. God set that up for decades down the road, even today, that affects our financial life because of the choices that I made and because of what God had done and made possible. But it wouldn't have been possible with what, without what God had set up for me. Now, I can take all the credit for that all day long, but ultimately, there wasn't really a whole lot that I did. It was the Lord. He set that up. He gave me those opportunities. He caused my parents to live so close to Prairie Camp that I could ride my bike and that I didn't have to get transportation. And he caused me to have the ability to work hard. It was God. And if we're going to stay humble, we have got to focus on, he, on his work in our lives, not on our own. There's one more uh, example I want to bring to you. And I thought about putting this passage on a sermon on its own. But as I was, I was, as I was preparing for this, I thought, man, you know what? This really fits well with being humble. Take a look here in verse 15. It says that they were bringing him even infants that they might touch him. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now, if you're one of the disciples, I mean, think about this. You probably have a pretty good heart about this, right? Hey, get rid of all these babies. Jesus doesn't have time for this. He's got ministry to do. He's got to teach these people. Didn't you just hear all these parables that he's teaching? Get these babies out of here. He's not your babysitter. Move along. Get somebody else. And then look at what Jesus says. He called to them saying, let the children come to me and not hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here's the last step. I think if we're going to stay humble, we got to take these couple steps to compare ourselves to God's standards, not everybody else, and to focus on what God is doing, not what we're doing, but also to have childlike faith. Now, you might say that sounds kind of strange. Like, what does it mean to have childlike faith? And why does that make me more humble? Think about just for a second what kids need. I have a three, four, and five-year-old at home. And let me tell you, kids need everything. I mean, they can't turn on a light switch. My three-year-old can't turn on a light switch. So every time she has to go to the bathroom, guess what? Dad has to turn on a light switch. Her mom has to turn on a light switch so that it's not dark in the bathroom. When we're sitting around, you know what happens when they need more ketchup? Hey, can I have more ketchup? Yeah, all right. Let me grab the ketchup for you. I mean, can't even have the motor skills to grab the ketchup bottle. I mean, we do 
you have to buy the big one because we, you know, we go through a lot of catch up. But I grab the big one, we squirt it on the plate, and then we move on, right? I mean, can I have more water? Can I have something more to eat? Can you tie my shoes? Can you put on my hat? I need this. I need that. It is literally everything. Parents of young kids, you get me? I mean, it is a hard life when you got young kids. They need everything done for them. But they also trust that you, if you're a good parent, they trust you to provide for them to provide all those needs, that they have a safe place, that they can confide in you and trust you. And that's what it means to have childlike faith. When Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of God, he's referring to this trust factor. He brings it up also in Matthew chapter 18. He says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Look, they're again, wanting to be the best and calling Uh, to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Think about this just for a moment. Jesus again is bringing up this childlike faith to his disciples. Now, the disciples are only focused on who's the best. They want to be the greatest in heaven. They want to be the one sitting next to Jesus in the kingdom of God. And Jesus essentially says this. He says, you know what? Actually, I'm going to call up this child. And back then, like children were despised. People did not like kids. They uh, thought that they were kind of a nuisance. They thought of just the lowest part of society were children. It would be like tax collectors and then kids, right? I mean, it was just the lowest part of society. And what Jesus says is, hey, I want this person who is super humble to just come to me. I'm going to show you an example. This is what it means to have faith, just like this child who needs to trust in his father for everything that he has. That's what Jesus is saying that our faith should look like. And that's what it really means to be humble. Daniel read this verse earlier for us during our worship portion, but it said this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. That sounds like the faith of a child, right? To just say, Father, I need you. I need you in all that I have. I can't do anything on my own regard. I need you. I need you to provide for me. I need you to sustain me. I need you. That's what it looks like to stay humble, to have this childlike faith. And let me tell you, when you do, things change. I want to just emphasize this again. When you come before God and you acknowledge your need before Him and you just say, God, I I need you for everything. I am a sinner and I need your saving grace in my life. The wonderful promise of the Bible is that when you draw near to God, He draws near to you. You want to improve your relationship with the Lord? You feel like you're in a little bit of a funk right now? You feel like you're kind of like, ah, I don't know, things are just kind of off between me and the Lord? Try that. Try just going before Him and saying, you know what? I need you, God. I I am a sinner, and I can't do this on my own. I need your saving grace in my life. And when you do that, let me tell you, you are far more satisfied in your life than you ever could about being prideful and being the best around. The people who are prideful and being the best around, you know what? That is like a dog chasing its tail. 
I mean, that's a game that never ends. I mean, really, because you have to continue being the best at everything, and then you have to make it known, right? Like when you're talking to people, oh, actually, I've done that already. Check out what I've done. Check a, take a look at my podcast or something. You know, I mean, think about it. I mean, that is a lot of work. And God says, hey, you don't need to do that. I've already done all the work. You just focus on me and rely on me. And that doesn't give us a to be lazy or something like that or not do what God's called us to do but we do just simply trust in him. And we acknowledge our need before him. If you want to have a long-lasting faith, if you want to have a faith that lasts decades and decades and decades, let me tell you, humility is essential. You want to have a faith that dies out over time, you become prideful and haughty and self-righteous like these Pharisees were. But if you want to be in your 60s and 70s and 80s and have a lifelong faith and pass it down to your kids the best way you can, you take a big dose of humility and you take these things to heart and you acknowledge your need before God and then you acknowledge that publicly as well with your kids and your grandkids and the people around you. And you know what it spurs on? It spurs on them to do the same thing. That's how you pass down your faith from generation to generation to generation. And you look back and you could say, man, grandpa wasn't perfect, but he sure did love Jesus. And he passed that on to us. And now I do as well. I don't know about any of you, but that's what I want to do someday. I want to take a big dose of humility day after day after day, acknowledge my need for Jesus, decade after decade, after decade. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you've done on the, on the cross. Help us to focus on that. And Father, I, I just pray that if there's any of us who really need to be humbled, would you make it happen? Convict us of our pride. God, would you, would you help us to be humble, to acknowledge our need for you, to acknowledge our need for a Savior, that we can't do it all on our own, but that we simply need you. And Father, we thank you that, again, you've made a way possible through your Son dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus, we thank you that you've made a way possible to have a relationship with us. And that's humbling. It's humbling that we can't do that. Only you could have done that, Jesus. And we thank you that you humbled yourself to come down out of heaven to be born in a barn with animals and to die a horrific death even though you didn't deserve it. You humbled yourself for us. God, would you help us in response to that to humble ourselves before you, to acknowledge our need for you, and for that to change the way that we live our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.